0: Welcome back. Hit Factory here. Just Aaron today, but uh, have brought a wonderful guest with me. Uh, they're a fiction writer and editor whose work can be found at publications such as New Gothic Review, Goodnight Sweet Prince, and Taco Bell Quarterly. A.A. Delevine is here with me today. A.A., welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm thrilled to have you. Uh, Charmed and delighted, in fact, to be here today with a fellow uh, AA person. Shout out to the first letter of the alphabet. It's a good one. It's fun Mm. being at the front of the line.
1: Big fan.
0: Uh, So today we're going to be discussing a fairly controversial figure uh, in the world of radical feminist thought and theory. She's still widely debated today as a figure, uh, and her name is Valerie Solanas. Her enduring pronouncement, The Scum Manifesto, is surpassed generally in the public consciousness by a single act of seemingly senseless brutality and violence. That act is one that gives us the title of today's film, uh, Mary Heron's 1996 directorial debut, I Shot Andy Warhol.
2: Life in this society, being at best another bore, and no aspect of society being at all relevant to women. There remains to civic-minded, thrill-seeking, responsible females, only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation, and destroy the male sex.
0: So, A.A., I am curious, as I always am at the beginning of these things, because you suggested this film, uh, and it's one that uh, I had heard a little bit about but had never seen myself. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about, actually, uh, its accessibility and how difficult it actually is to get, get your hands on these days. But uh, I would love to know, what's the significance of this film to you? Why did you select it? Um, and, and what does it just mean to you as a piece of art?
1: I mean, I think it's it's such an exciting movie. I think it's so fun and it's so unique. I think Mary Heron did, I think because it was a debut that was initially um, visualized as a documentary, it has such a strange quirkiness to it that I find really appealing. There's not really a lot of movies that I could compare it to directly. Um, And this movie also holds a very special place in my heart because I stole the DVD from a former roommate who had stolen (laughs) every copy of Playgirl that I owned. So this was sort of like, you know, in the spirit of Valerie, uh, I got mine.
0: Absolutely. Your own little act of retribution, taking back a little bit of what is yours, so to speak. Uh, so this is the first time I've, I've seen the film, as I mentioned, um, I had heard a little bit about it. Uh, Mary Heron, of course, somebody who is fairly well known um, for the film that she would uh, follow this up with American Psycho with Christian Bale. But this one has such a, an interesting, as you say, kind of like vividness and energy and rawness to it. it um, it's one that took me by surprise, even knowing a little bit about Mary Heron's career knowing that she has spent a lot of her career post-American psycho sort of dabbling into these kind of biopics that focus on women who are sort of social misfits or people who are outcast or sort of misunderstood in the public eye. Um, this feels very much in line with that kind of ethos and, and sort of center of thought, but uh, is something so kind of wildly original and strange uh, and also just I don't know. There is something just very empathetic about it, uh, despite yeah. the fact that the the character at its at its core is somebody who, uh, you know, is is certainly kind of mentally unwell um, and and who did commit this rather atrocious act of of real world violence. Uh, and I, it's brought to vivid life by the actress Lily Taylor.
1: She is so amazing in this, and I think. There's so there's so little footage of Valerie Solanas, so we don't really get a sense like in real life of what she was really like. Um, but in the few clips that I have seen of her, it's it's so amazing what Lily Taylor was able to do, where she inhabits this person without making it seem like she's wearing them as a costume. She really feels like she became someone else. There's such like a Something that's striking to me about this movie is just the cadence of it and the rhythm of it all. And Valerie Solanus had, I think because she was such a voicey writer, had such a unique rhythm to the way she spoke and the way she wrote. And I think Lily Taylor really captures that quite beautifully in the movie.
0: Yeah, she's very brash. She often sort of feels like she's kind of in a world that she inhabits on her own amongst all these various kind of characters uh, in in her orbit. Uh, She's introduced early in the film to one of Andy Warhol's muses, Candy Darling, um, played by Stephen Dorff in this film, a, a performance we will certainly get into more. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot, a lot there. <laughs> um, and, you know, she's always just somebody who she doesn't seem to quite maybe understand the way she comes off to people. You know, there's sort of a, a lack of self-awareness, but there's such a genuineness to the character in the way that Taylor portrays her that it's wholly believable. You you see her as, as you mentioned, like not just a caricature, not just a parody of what this this person is and what Solanus probably was in real life, but somebody who has this this very fractured history, has a lot of just kind of like the residue of existence sort of carried around on top of her.
1: Yeah, she had a pretty, pretty brutal and traumatic uh, childhood and, and early life. Um, they have like a psychologist character that kind of gives you a not overly expository kind of background dive into what Valerie was like growing up. Um, And we learned that she had been sexually abused, that she, um, you know, sex had been a part of her life since she was like 13. So, you know, kind of forced to enter this adult world very prematurely. Um, She made money, um, you know, through prostitution in her, you know, teens and early twenties. So I think that that really had an impact on how she viewed, sex, how she viewed, you know, these kind of transactional uh, relationships with men. Um, And I think the movie does a really good job of presenting that neutrally. I don't think it ever says that she is a bad person for having done these things or it's just kind of giving you um, a little bit of context and a little bit of um, texture, you know, to to kind of here's maybe why she had these sort of reactions to, to certain people.
0: Yeah, and despite all of that, it doesn't really feel like uh Heron is, I guess, attempting to kind of psychologize her or give us like a very sort of cut and dry reading of the whys, just sort right. of the the context. And and in that you do end up somewhat sympathizing. You kind of understand like there's there's a, a great deal of trauma, a great deal of abuse in this person's life, and a great deal of uh just precarity, you know, that that yeah. inevitably leads people to a lot of this kind of behavior, you know, the, the sort of erraticism, um, you you begin to sort of understand, even if you never wholly identify or you know know all of the the kind of why's and the reasons in the moment of of why she inevitably does what she does in the film.
1: Yeah, I think one thing that makes this film, I think, so smart to me is that it'll present questions or it'll present really interesting juxtapositions and kind of let you ask the questions. So, you know, we see this kind of precarious um, existence that Valerie has and how she has to essentially fight her way through a lot of shit. And she's a survivor in many ways and how, you know, she doesn't get opportunities because of that. She gets anything, anything that happens to her happens despite that. But then we see that juxtaposed with people at the factory who also, you know, are promiscuous, who also take a lot of drugs um, and are heralded as, like, these geniuses and, like, they're so chic, they're so glamorous. And it kind of presents you with this question of, like, well, who gets to be glamorous and who gets to be seen as eccentric versus who gets to be seen as trash, who's seen as, like, not worth people's time. Um, And I think the movie does a good job of presenting that without being preachy or hit you over the head with it.
0: I completely agree. And, you know, it doesn't go so far as to kind of like vilify Warhol or the kind of factory superstars and all these sort of stalwart characters that are are in his orbit. But it does show exactly what, what you just mentioned, which is that there is a sort of palatable, like, avant quality to them and, and something that is considered chic, considered sort of of the moment and countercultural in a very... Uh, attractive way that makes them this sort of center of of culture and art during this period of time in the late 60s in Manhattan, whereas someone like Solanus, you know, she's rough around the edges and she is very militant and and her writing and her kind of ideology espouses a, a deep antagonism towards these structures, a lot of which Warhol and the factory people embody, right? This kind of sense of classical beauty, this sort of patriarchal idea of uh you know like labor exploitation and and financial currency social currency all of those sorts of things um and a lot of this is given to us throughout the film as lily taylor as solanus kind of reading directly to the camera in these black and white sort of uh vignettes from her writing in the scum manifesto uh a you mentioned that you might have your copy of scum manifesto there it is for our yeah. listeners at home uh is showing it to me right now over the video chat. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Scum Manifesto and kind of what it espouses?
1: Sure. I mean, it is, so Scum stands for Society for Cutting Up Men, um, and that tells you a lot about its aims. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it is a manifesto. It is, um, it is, so there's some sort of uh, debate historically about how much she meant for this to be a satire, how much of it is meant to be funny um, versus how much is serious versus how much is kind of the ramblings of someone who was unwell. Um, you know, I think it can be all of those things. I think she was serious and she was also being really funny. I think mm-hmm. one thing that the movie captures really well is that she wasn't someone who was, although she was very militant, she wasn't uh, dour. She had like a spark and she was quite funny and quite witty um, and you see that a lot in, even in this like very violent uh, anti-men manifesto, um, even though she was quite like a gender essentialist. We see in the movie, there's like some turfy rhetoric surrounding yeah. uh, candy darling.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I think she was going through something very obviously. And I think this was also really, um, it's an artifact of its time. I think, I think this was, you know, a woman who was an artist, who wanted to be an even bigger artist going through poverty, going through sexual abuse, um, being a lesbian in in this time, specific time in New York in the 60s. Um, and I think a lot of that is in here. So it is a very layered piece, I think.
0: Yeah, I had a chance to read a little bit of it in in preparation for today. And you're right. There's like a, a sardonic quality to it where she clearly has a, a very skillful like grasp on language. She's funny very often in here and and I can see why there is some debate over uh you know whether or not this is intended to be satirical or whether this is just you know ruminations from a mind that does have that kind of acerbic wit that kind of like characteristic like fast talking quality. And you're right, you do see in the film a lot of times she has uh these very quick kind of jabs that she's able to throw out. She's kind of venomous, she's got these barbs. Uh, I really enjoy the first time she meets Warhol officially, uh, or maybe the second time, and and Warhol kind of says that when they initially met, uh, he assumed that she was a, a cop or something, you know like an undercover police officer, and her response is to uh, flash her vagina to him and say, "Yeah, I'm a cop. Here's my badge." Yeah. Um,
1: and that scene is actually played so beautifully, I think, by Lily Taylor that it shows that she's kind of, um, there's almost like a coyness and like a bashfulness in how she plays it while she's doing this like really kind of weird, you know, it's kind of weird to do that when you first meet somebody. Um, <laughs> a and bit. I just love also how all, you know, the factory all-stars are kind of completely disgusted by something that... Is quite avant garde. It is quite, you know, pushing boundaries, and isn't that what they're there to do? And they're kind of like, oh, this play is so disgusting. Oh, this woman is so crass. You know, I, I love, I love the way that whole scene is played.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I love uh, a couple of these key characters. I, I should mention too that uh, Michael Imperioli, the great uh, Michael Imperioli from The Sopranos, is in this. There are a couple of Sopranos alum in this uh, film. Yeah. John Ventimiglia has like a very uh, brief scene. Um, Artie Bucco himself. Yeah. Very memorable, uh, you know, getting to to watch a, a lesbian sexual encounter from uh, from a chair, paying some money to do so. Uh, but yeah, you're right they they are so kind of offended by this this philistine, this kind of brute who's walking into uh, their sort of their their holy temple, right? This place of the avant garde and this place that's supposed to clash with conventionality, but um, but they don't understand it and they can't quite figure out a way for it to kind of coalesce with their own identities and her existence on the margin all the time is something that I think from a viewer standpoint really starts to wear on you. And not in a way that I mean it feels tedious, but you start to see just like how uh kind of concretized all these people are and their their insistence that this person doesn't belong here and that she's an outsider, that you begin to yourself feel some of that frustration that kind of like you know like distaste for that elitism that you're witnessing
1: yeah and i mean you know not to sound you know like i'm trying to 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 be funny about this or glib or anything but it does show how little things have changed um and how i mean the factory was kind of really in essence like a hype house and it was like this like idea that like we're influencers, and Valerie is not palatable. She's not monetizable, is what yeah. we would use today, um, and just how we can't really package her into something that you know the critics and the art buyers that come to our shishi parties at the loft they they you know would find this distasteful. They wouldn't pay money for this person, and that really comes across, I think, in just how like they don't know how to market Valerie.
0: Yeah, it's it's not really spoken within the film, but, you know, historically, the factory was a place where alongside, you know, Warhol and, and a lot of these uh, artists, the, the you know, Lou Reed's and John Kales, who scores the film, by the way, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, that they're all people who are surrounded by a lot of moneyed interests as well. There are, you know, the people within art society who have a lot of cash to spend and are, you know, propping these figures up as, you know, the new voice of this generation. There's a lot of kind of like, you know, dilettantes and social climbers who are just very rich kids who are interested in this and find it edgy and fun to go and you know do drugs and dance and hang out with these interesting figures. Um, and you're right. I mean, it all comes down to, at the end of the day, this perpetuation of uh, a, a cycle of kind of profitability and marketability. And uh, and Valerie doesn't fit in. It, it starts from the very beginning, too. She initially, before she even composes the Scum Manifesto, before she's seeking out an opportunity to get published, she writes a play, a uh, hyper-radical uh, like, hyper, like radical feminist anti-man play called uh, Up Your Ass. And it's a great title <laughs> and we see a little bit of it performed. There's a really funny scene where they're doing uh, a, a scene from this in the diner and Candy Darling plays one of the, I guess, more kind of like femme classic sort of women in the play and and mentions like, oh, I'm I'm searching for a turd because like I'm, I'm bringing it to dinner with these men because men love it when uh, women eat shit. <laughs> and-
1: yeah, I mean, you know, Valerie was really like a proto John Waters. She was there, you know, like it it, didn't, it really makes me wonder, like, because a lot of, you know, what we're what we see of up your ass is is kind of silly, honestly. It's it's kind of a silly play. Um mm. and it's really meant to to disgust an audience. Um, I think that's really its intent. But it's also again really funny the idea that she lost this turd because she took it out to have it dyed yellow, like it's just like, that's such a funny detail. Um, and it makes you think like, you know, could she have been someone with the right support that could have been like a John Waters? Could she have been like, you know, a surrealist playwright kind of doing off-Broadway stuff that people just like loved and talked about at parties? Like who could she have been, I think?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you, you know, you kind of see her as maybe a an artist ahead of her time a little bit. And I, I think the film even sort of posits that too, that, you know, her ideology is something that is, Still in its nascent stages and hasn't quite yet codified more of the kind of militant and violent edges uh, that will eventually come to be be and represent part of of that sort of radical feminist ideology. Uh, and even someone like John Waters, like you mentioned, right, like needed uh, the inspiration of a kind of like uh, distasteful grindhouse kind of horror background that came in the decade following Solanus's, uh kind of. Arc here and, and her engagement with with the Warhols of the world uh, to really be find its audience to find people who were seeking out this kind of aggravating and antagonizing art. Um, so yeah, you're you're right, and and there's this kind of like lack of lack of camp to the way she presents herself, right. and you almost you almost wonder that uh, you know this kind of idea of recodifying the scum manifesto as something that is uh, parody as as satirical helps to market it as sort of a, a feature rather than a bug of, of its writing um, that, that Solanus wasn't quite able to, to tap into at the time to really sell it.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's very clear, I think, um, throughout the movie where she's you know talking to or trying to talk really to Andy Warhol about art, like she wants to be taken seriously by him and also really wants his money. So they kind of have the same aim at the end of the day. She <laughs> yeah. needs money. She needs funds to make more money. Um, to be out there and to be able to make more art and to have her message get out Um, in her trying to talk to him in her trying to, you know, be present at parties at the factory or at their loft and, and not really fitting in sitting on the margins in her trying to get published by Olympia press. You know, we see all her make all these attempts and really trying, but she's never at any point has, there's no fan of her work really at any point. Um, in this film. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting to me. It's interesting to see a story of an artist whose art isn't necessarily liked or even read for the most part.
0: Yeah. And in that way, it sort of becomes an interesting kind of ode to or tome to outsider art in and of itself from uh, an artist who was just kind of getting started in her own filmmaking career. Yeah. We haven't touched on it yet, but Mary Heron kind of began as sort of one of the founding writers of Punk magazine, she did a lot of coverage of of the punk scene and and music, and uh, was in and around a lot of this very aggressive kind of countercultural antagonistic art a lot. Um, and and so someone who is probably deeply familiar with the idea of of people making things out of self expression of very kind of strange avant-garde ideologies and, and expressions and ideas and and experiences uh, that didn't catch on with the mainstream, that that really, really fought hard to try to find purchase with an audience and failed. Um, so it's interesting as, as a kind of first statement from an up and coming filmmaker to already be reckoning with that and maybe having a little bit of a concern or a fear that what if I'm that as well? You know, what what if my fixations and fascinations are something that don't resonate with a broad audience?
1: For sure. Yeah. I think, you know, in this way, Valerie was really like an artist's artist. Like I think she uh, inhabits a lot of our greatest fears. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but about (laughs) making art and just like, is this not even is this something that has an audience, but is this something that will be respected? Is it gonna find people who are going to meet me where I am. Um, and she did not, at least not in her lifetime, which I thought, again, it, that's so interesting to explore and doubly interesting, I think, because Valerie doesn't seem frightened by the prospect of not being like or being understood. I think really she just wanted some modicum of respect. And then again, she wanted financing. She wanted to be able to like make this play a your like a reality. She wanted to be able to publish Scum Manifesto. She wanted to be able to reach people um, even if they didn't like her, even if they didn't respect her, even if they still thought she was trash. She had this message and she had this sort of like pure drive, I think, to create art and put it out there.
3: Last night, I was at Max's Kansas City. That's the chic hangout for the jet set of the world. Roger Vadim was there with Jane Fonda. Andy Warhol was there too. Who's that? How do I look? Revlon, Natural Wonder Eyeshadow. As I was saying, Andy Warhol was there. He's a very famous artist.
2: Yeah, I know who he is. I'm writing a play, and I want him to produce it.
3: Well, Andy just makes movies now. I did my Kim Novak for him, and he was very impressed. He invited me up to his studio. It's called The Factory. It's where the in crowd go when they're not at Max's Kansas City. If anyone can make you a star, Andy can.
2: Great. I'll go with you.
3: Valerie, the invitation was to me alone.
2: I won't get in your way. I gotta meet him. I want to show him my play.
0: Another interesting character that comes into Valerie's orbit early on in the film, but really plays a a considerable role throughout, is a character named Maurice Giraudius, who is a a publisher, a a Frenchman, who is someone well-known or kind of infamous for taking chances on... Some more kind of explicit, exploitative art. Uh, I understand that he was one of the few people who was willing to publish Lolita um, in in the fifties and and kind of get it mass circulation. Published a lot of erotic writings as well, uh, and he's someone who takes a, a kind of vested interest early on in Valerie and wants to help her publish and produce novels. We we learn, of course, that he's a little bit more predatory than he initially comes off. But I find his character very interesting, too. for a little while in the film, you know, not knowing the historical context or background, they almost present it as if he is uh, kind of a fraud, you know, which, and that he may be gaming her. there's There's some like sly kind of uh, remarks made by Warhol and some other people that are kind of there to lead the audience to the supposition that maybe he's playing Valerie and not really a publisher at all before we find out more about kind of what his long game is
1: yeah the movie does such an interesting job uh with him because as you say like it almost kind of leans towards these tropes that we've seen before of like this guy with like the kind of greasy appearance like he has like you know really lacquered slicked back hair he's always like smoking he's always drinking he's always wearing like his suit and tie everywhere um (laughs) and you know that kind of image we're kind of attuned to think like oh this is like a bad guy like he's so obviously a liar and a fraud, and he's gonna like take her for everything she's worth, um, which is not exactly the case. Like he does want to publish her, and he does publish um, a lot of uh, like erotic, uh, you know, work. And I think his father even uh, published Henry Miller. So it's like he comes from a long line of uh, yeah. of people who who do this and who kind of like want to support <laughs> um, more controversial art the movie also kind of keeps us at a, a slight distance from his true intent. We never know how honest he's being. We never yeah. know whether Valerie kind of wore him down. We never know whether he actually intended to publish Scum Manifesto or not. Um, it was eventually published, but, you know, Valerie didn't really see anything come from that. So it, it, it's just like this kind of like push and pull and this tension um, like, what is this guy about and what's his aim? And, and I think, I think that's a lot of, of um what being an artist and what trying to be published and what, you know, trying to get someone who's like, in and not that he's like, a, really an insider, but someone more on the inside than you are to vouch for your work and help you put it out there. Um, we're kind of in her mindset. Cause it's like, do we trust this guy? Like, this could be a great opportunity. This could be the biggest mistake she's ever made. And and the movie always kind of like plays with that, I think, which is which is fun. It adds a lot of tension.
0: Definitely. It, it also kind of brings up a, an interesting central contradiction to Valerie in that, you know, she is somebody who just like anybody else is beholden to these structures that her writing and that her ideology sort of uh, puts her in opposition to. She is someone who is opposed to the male species broadly, as she mentions, you know, like literally the society for cutting up men, getting rid of them, exterminating men uh, after society has sort of evolved past the need for them. And yet throughout the film, we see that she is completely reliant for her sort of visibility and for her popularity and and, uh, potential to get her work out to a wider audience, on two men, on Warhol, who's you know very at that kind of at the peak of his game at this point, and to Gerodius. and I, I don't think the film ever tries to call her a hypocrite for that. I think it's just a, a, another one of those moments where we see the kind of inherent contradictions and flaws in in the philosophy here at the beginning, kind of nascent stages of it, and realize how sort of pervasive this patriarchy is that even people who want to oppose it need it ultimately.
1: Yeah, there's a really interesting scene where she gets Candy to do her makeup and lend her a dress for her uh, meeting to sign her contract with Gerodius. Yeah, It's such an interesting scene because, again, the movie doesn't tell us what to feel about it. And we don't get a lot of dialogue explaining this choice. And it's such an odd choice for Valerie. Um, but it's almost like we see her want to become more palatable and more feminine. And... We never get the sense, I think, as a viewer, if she's doing this because she thinks—and she said that she thinks that men, you know, will wade knee deep in snot and vomit to get at it. Um, If she's like, "Well, (laughs) let me, let me, let me bait him, let me lure him," or if she's like, "Well, I have to play this game in order to get, you know, a book, a book deal," we never really know what her actual reasoning for this is. And it's so interesting because it does show that she's still cognizant of the fact that she's got to be a little bit fake as, as even as someone who is like very genuine through most of the like to a fault throughout most of the movie she still has to put on the sort of costume of femininity to get something that she wants and needs
0: yeah it's one of the films or, or rather one of Valerie's like kind of most potent scenes of, of kind of self-awareness you know earlier in the film I think uh, Andy even kind of sort of offhandedly tells her in the presence of candy, like she's beautiful, like she's, uh, you know, so, so pristine, you should have her do your makeup, you know, like you should have her kind of fix you up and make you more presentable. Lo and behold, like we see her eventually do that and, and kind of take Andy's advice. Um, and she realizes, like you said, she has to kind of play the game a little bit. She has to be someone a little bit fake, um, or so she, she thinks in order to, lure this man into this position of, of comfort and uh, willingness to kind of offer her this.
1: And I love that the scene right after it, then is kind of like her the morning after um, she still has like the remnants of like last night's makeup and, you know, and her hair is still in this like weird, like curled thing that candy helped her do. <laughs> um, but she's now like in her, like, you know, tank top and at her typewriter and hungover clearly. And then she's finally looking over the contract and just being like, "What have I done?" And I think like those scenes right after the other is just very it's like ah uh, was was that worth it? like was I predator or was I prey in this situation
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and the sort of like afterglow of it and you know, and then in kind of like the the cold, dark light of the next day we we realize that the film and and maybe you know, kind of like the universe broadly sort of punishes her for this yeah. Fake presentation that she's put on for this, uh, you know, uh, transformation she takes on in order to try to assimilate.
1: Yeah. The only two times she really takes care to make sure her hair is done is at that meeting and then to go and shoot Andy, <laughs> <laughs> which I think right. is really interesting storytelling.
0: AA, what do you think of Jared Harris's performance as Andy Warhol in this film?
1: Well, I think. I think andy warhol is an interesting person to play because i think he was also always kind of playing a part
3: Mm
1: -hmm. um so you know his affect and the fact that he was you know wearing a wig and essentially what was a costume all the time and like this uniform that he wore um there's no way to make to you can't be realistic when playing andy because he wasn't a realistic person he Mm -hmm. was putting on a persona to an extent um So I think Jared Harris did a a good job. I mean, I think he he sounded like Andy. You know, he moved seemingly like Andy. Um, I think he did a really good job of embodying that kind of almost naive stance where there was like the OG, you know, reaction to a lot of stuff and just like sitting on the sidelines of like these parties that were ostensibly about him, but not really. Not really being able to vibe with people really well, mm-hmm. um being almost shy um and almost childlike in a lot of ways. I think he did a really good job with that. Um, but yeah, again, there's there's always kind of like a like a falseness, I think when you're playing andy. there's there's no way to make it seem quite real, I think,
0: yeah. and the film and and Jared Harris, too, I think, does a good job of sort of portraying this kind of disaffected quality without it boiling over into this sort of unintended, like innocence, you know, Mm -hmm. I think childlikeness is is a good word for it. But we certainly see that, you know, at best, he's often just sort of unintentionally complicit in a lot of the antagonisms that Valerie receives from the rest of the factory personnel and, and cohort. He often feels like he's kind of being carried sort of on the wave of a lot of other people's scorn and just sort of idly going along with it. We don't really ever know for sure How much of it is stuff that are like kind of his edicts or things that he's just choosing to do or not choosing to do by virtue of kind of the, the consensus of the people in his orbit?
1: Yeah, I think it's really on the viewer to decide whether his approach to Valerie is non-confrontational or whether it's cowardice really. And and whether he just doesn't want to say like, Hey, stop coming over here. We're not going to publish your play. Um, (laughs) You know, at one point, and I think this happened in real life, too, he he lets her know that the play is so well typed and invites her to become like a typist Mm -hmm. um, with the group, which is, I think, says really a lot about him. And I think either not really knowing or caring, and I don't really know which one, uh, to be socially graceful to someone who is... um, I guess in, in a way looks up to him, or or sees him as someone who has, while she has not, um, and to kind of treat them so dismissively. Um, you know, there's also a scene with um, Michael Imperioli plays Undine, where we also see the way, like the tone, I guess, that Andy set, that was emulated and kind of carried on by the people around him. Where Undine yep. is talking to um, a man who's like painting backdrop or something. And essentially telling him like why don't you become gay you're so pretty like basically like i want you right like sexually harassing mm-hmm. his co-worker <laughs> in this loft yeah um and it shows i think that you know women and also men that are seen as feminized were kind of seen as like objects and were really that's what they were selling like the art this was the artwork this was the object where these like really beautiful often very young um people on screen, you know, we see a, um, a scene being filmed also where they ask this guy to, like, take his pants off and he seems really unsure about it. And, you know, at no point are we told in the context of the scene, like, why this is happening. It's mm-hmm. just kind of like Andy says he wants this guy to take his pants off. So the guy takes his pants off. It again, just very interesting the way that people are seen and used throughout and what that means in the context, I think, of of art, of, you know, objectifying people, male and female. I think the, the film does a really good job of showing that this is something kind of pervasive and and uh, at the core of the ethos of this this group.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point. Uh, I, I'm recalling too, when they're sort of watching, I, I mean, what it what it kind of evokes is, you know, a, a director watching dailies of all of these screen tests that uh, some of the factory folks have done. And in this scene as well, Michael Imperioli is on Dean is just wretched and and him and another character are uh talking shit i mean you know the, the best way to put it about people who are in the room with them who are up on screen and and you know i think at one point call one of the women like poor sign and fat and you know and just like degrading her body as she's like exposing her breast on the camera and then they refer to valerie as a monstrosity they you know they're looking at all of these people and a couple of them they're like oh you know this man is beautiful or, you know, he's an Adonis, they say about Damien Leitch's character. Candy um, they find
1: really beautiful, yeah.
0: Yes, absolutely. And then she's magnetic and, you know, like just glows on the camera. But for a couple of them, they they do, they perpetuate this really kind of awful system of like degradation and, you know, just like looking at these kind of minute factors of a person and, you know, sizing them up to, ultimately what is marketable, what is attractive, what feels good to look at and to, to just kind of gaze upon.
1: Yeah, there was nothing being subverted, really. It was let's, let's hold up kind of existing conventions, you know.
0: There's a really, really great midpoint scene in this film, which uh, you, you can't help but notice because of its length. Um, and it's a, it's a party at the factory that Valerie goes to and you know there's the kind of usual revelry there's the bright flashing lights and there's the beautiful costuming and the music you know we we have kind of a a band on stage who are portraying the velvet underground um you know donovan leitch's character is on stage dancing with a whip and and what have you and all of that is is good fun and you know kind of a chance for mary heron i think to show off you know a little bit of her visual panache but the moment that strikes me the most is that it's it's uh, when Valerie and Andy are sitting together on a couch and the evening is sort of winding down. And it's kind of one of the only moments of genuine connection between the two where you realize that these two are kind of like wallflowers both from kind of different vantage points and they end up sort of connecting over... Uh, kind of their their shared dispassion for all of it and for sexuality and for kind of like the debauchery that's happening around them. It's, it's a good scene. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about it, AA?
1: Yeah, it, it was interesting because it, it was them connecting over, um, and I wouldn't call it like, a, like an asexuality, but like um, a distaste for sex, I guess, mm-hmm. and a sort of um, seeing it as a tool or a weapon rather than like a source of pleasure or creation or anything like that. Um, And it's so funny because, like, Andy approaches Valerie with his little tape recorder asking her to, like, say something dirty. So we're kind of, like, you know, seeing that he's kind of fascinated with her as, like, this this weird little object that keeps, like, turning up at Mm -hmm. their loft. And at that point, he's kind of wondering, like, what is she all about? You know, like, when all these other people are, like, partying there's a certain point where I think like, you know, the Velvet Underground uh, stops playing and they play like a really uh, popular like pop song of the time. And everyone's like dancing to like really mainstream pop mm-hmm. um, and just being, you know, it, it's sort of like the mask starts slipping off and it's like, oh, these are just normal people. <laughs> you know, these are just like kind of posers, you know?
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and then, you know, Andy and, and, and Valerie kind of bonding over, how weird they are really and and how their view of the world is really askew and really not like the people around them who are just there to kind of like party and have a good time and, and have sex. Like we see a lot of people like literally hooking up right at the party. Um, And I think at at this, at this uh, point, um, Valerie has an opportunity to read from her manifesto. And, again, Andy, in, like, that kind of typical Andy way, is kind of like, oh, wow, OG, like, you know, interested, like, keep going. (laughs) Um, Oh, wow, Valerie. Um, And I think it's fun. It's almost like a sweet scene between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And I think that was needed because it kind of – you needed to wonder why Valerie would keep pursuing, you know. And I think it shows that they kind of – like, not just Andy, but, like, this whole, like, kind of world kept her close enough or at least didn't tell her no, you know, explicitly enough that she really thought I have a chance. Like I'm, I could be part of this group.
0: Yeah. It works on a lot of levels like that. It, it, uh, you know, does show that there is this kind of genuine connection between Valerie and Andy. Um, and, and as you mentioned, you know, they, they do keep her relatively close out of kind of a fascination or almost like a devotion to her as somebody who's rough around the edges, but you know, hasn't been totally excommunicated yet as she ultimately is by the end of the film. Uh, her relationship, To to Candy, also kind of presents this way as well. You know, she does often hang out with her in private or with a handful of other people. And uh, we we see that there's a a connection there, but one that is ultimately kind of relieved uh, when they're in this bigger group of people who have sort of a negative view of her. It's also just, you know, a, a sweet and tender moment that ultimately just really makes the impact of. That climactic scene where she pulls a gun on him—that much more brutal because you see, in all of this, you know, we begin to wonder how much of of Andy is authentic to you know this idea of kind of like a countercultural expression and to the avant-garde and and his like artistic ideals. And this is one of those moments where we see that even within this kind of group around him that he's attracted, he's one who does still go against the grain. He's one that maybe. Valerie identifies as as like the single true artist in the group, and they share that connection, Uh, and yeah, it just adds a a whole new layer of potency to the conclusion of the film.
1: Yeah, and I always wondered, like, does is that like recording exist of him, you know, from that party? I I wondered if that was a real moment.
0: I'm so curious about it. There are so many things in here that you know clearly are very well researched, like that, you know, the Velvet Underground playing here. I, I also find it very interesting, you know, as just a brief kind of digression. How many people in the orbit of the film I shot, Andy Warhol, uh, have some sort of familial connection to the events portrayed in there? Um, that character we've mentioned a couple times doing the whip dance, the Adonis, uh, is played by uh, Donovan Leitch, uh, an actor who's maybe most famous for uh, playing the, the kind of handsome you know, quarterback jock in Chuck Russell's The Blob from 1988, who gets offed very quickly. Spoiler. Um, but but he is the son of the Donovan Leitch, a.k.a. Donovan, the musician, whose songs feature prominently on the soundtrack. Um, there's another woman uh, who acts in the film, uh, Tawny Welch, who is indeed the daughter of actress Raquel Welch. Um, she's in the film. And as we already mentioned, you know, maybe the, the biggest kind of uh, connective tissue here is John Cale himself, who does the score for the film, uh, and who was himself a, a prominent member and founder of the Velvet Underground. Um, his score is fantastic, by the way, um, as they always are. He he's uh, just an incredible musician. I'm so intrigued by his involvement in this um, because you know his his kind of public statements about Valerie Solanas have been. Pretty scornful. Um, he even has a, a song from 1990 with Lou Reed called "I Believe," uh, in which you know it, it tells the story of of Valerie shooting Andy. And there's a line in there where the two of them sort of proclaim that they uh, it basically would have would have executed her themselves if they had the chance.
1: Yeah, which is so. I saw an interview recently with Lou Reed where he uh, had found out that she died. She died, I believe, uh, like in
3: 89.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and she died homeless in um, San Francisco. So, you know, I b- believe of pneumonia. So she had been sick. She had been, you know, she was unhoused. And, you know, died quite brutally. And it was probably like a, a um, prolonged death, you know. And Lou Reed's reaction was like, oh, I'm so glad. I'm so relieved. And it was just like, what? I, I just wondered... <laughs> how much they even interacted with her, really, um, versus how much was, oh, she shot her friend, you know, Mm -hmm. without really um, knowing her, which I guess, I mean, I think it's fair if someone shoots your friend to not like them. (laughs) I mean, that's fine. Um, But I always wondered how connected they were to her. And um, I had read when Mary Heron uh, had initially conceived of this project, it was going to be a documentary. Right. But she ran into so many hurdles, not only because there wasn't just a lot of footage of Valerie, um which I think also tells you a lot because I mean, these were people who like recorded everything. Yeah. Um, there were also not enough people who were willing to talk about her. So I think that posed a really interesting kind of wrinkle. You know, these people, whether, you know, because they still hated her, because it was still raw, because they were still in mourning for their friend, um, were just like not willing to do this. So it's interesting that then, you know, to then compose music for the fictional version, I think maybe, maybe that was part of like a grieving process, or maybe it was easier to, to approach this if it was fictionalized.
0: Yeah. You have to imagine that it, it certainly wasn't, and you're totally right that, you know, it's, it's impossible for, I I think Reed and Kale to be uh, objective about this and and approach it from anywhere, even close to you know impartiality that that album songs for Drello, that they produced with that song on it is literally the two of them on the cover with sort of a, a translucent image of andy warhol's face behind them so you know like it, it's it's clear whose side of, of history they are on um but i i am just so fascinated by it because as you mentioned you know maybe as a mourning process yes but i am I'm, I'm so interested in kind of the evolution over those years of maybe kale's sentiment toward solanus and the events that the film portrays given how sort of sentimental the film is and i I don't mean that it's you know totally sympathetic. i I think it very much does draw a line and and say that this was pretty horrific and, and an act that you know was rather senseless to somebody who certainly didn't deserve to be shot um but it does go about it in a way that does truly try to get us to sympathize with Valerie Solanas quite a bit and try to understand her experience enough to understand how and why this may have happened, or, or at least like I've said before, kind of the, the context that ultimately led up to something that felt kind of random and, and horrible.
1: Yeah. And I think it, it's, it's so interesting that the movie almost begins with kind of that question where she's being interrogated and they ask her, why'd you do this a couple of times? and so she gets really agitated. Valerie gets really agitated and tells him like, that's too, I'm not going to get into that. It's just too much, you know, and then roll the movie, you know, mm-hmm. like where it, it is complicated, you know, like there are layers to how this came about. And it doesn't excuse it. It still shows the shooting itself as like uh quite a an odd but really violent moment. Um but it also shows that this wasn't something that was just, I think, oh, she is like a hysterical woman who was jealous or wanted something and didn't get it. There there are like there is care, I think, taken and the sort of gentle approach to mining her. Her history and, and the events surrounding the shooting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I guess now's an, a good time to talk about that shooting scene because it's one that, um, I don't know, it's it's very marked in the film. Obviously, it's very important to the entirety of the film. It's it's what the film is named after, but uh, it it is odd and it's shot in such a way as to be kind of unceremonious and terrifying and also kind of just like comically funny in certain ways you know that she she draws this gun from a bag as warhol's on the phone and and barely even registers her doesn't even notice you know this kind of very thematically concise sort of moment where um she, she's literally doing something that should be calling his attention and and he can't even be bothered to look up at her um you know the the, the moment where she turns back around to try to shoot the the art dealer and the gun is empty and it's the only thing really that spares his life. Uh, it, it's it's such a interesting kind of series of events and one that I can't really think of any proxies to in in terms of other sort of like cinematic moments of you know assassination or attempted assassination like this.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, Mary Heron is so good at violence. Like she's just good at at portraying how absurd it can be, and also in that, how terrifying, how unexpected. And abrupt, and, and you know, awful it is. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was so smart of her to play this so, like, as an anti-climax, really. There is, like, the the scenes leading up to it where um, we have this great character played by Justin Thoreau, who's a yes. member of this group <laughs> called the Motherfuckers, <laughs> um, who teaches Valerie how to shoot and gives her... She steals the gun from him, so that's how mm-hmm. she got that. Um, and how... We see that this wasn't something that she had thought about, I think, until she saw the gun in her hands and she was like, huh, Hmm. what if, you know, and then very quickly after that decides um, to shoot Gerodius, which she doesn't get the chance to, and then to go and shoot Andy. But it is very anticlimactic. It is in this like very sparse uh, room with some art on the walls. There are like Valerie and like three, four of the people in this room. It's very quiet. It's just uh Andy and his phone conversation where he's like kind of saying a lot of nothing. It's like really small talk, like, oh mm-hmm. wow, okay. You know, um, no one's looking at Valerie. No one really acknowledges Valerie. Um, she comes in with the gun in this like little paper bag. She holds it out for a really long time. Again, no one's looking at her, no one's paying attention. It's almost like she's giving them time to acknowledge her, you know, and we wonder what might have happened if somebody had said, Valerie, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, she shoots him, I think, three times.
0: Yeah, she, she shoots him a couple times from a more or less point blank. And then one that is effectively, you know, gun to chest, like pressed up against him and, and a really kind of horrifying and violent moment in the film. Uh, but this is also, I, I think, a moment where Jared Harris really shines, too. I actually, you know, now that I th- am thinking about it, I am recalling the kind of climactic scene in the Gus Van Sant film Milk. Where Josh Brolin goes to uh, shoot uh, Sean Penn as as Harvey Milk. And there's something about the way both of them play it, where there's this sort of induced panic where that you just you don't know what to do when you're looking down the barrel of a gun like that except kind of cry out no." and and you sort of plead with the person, but there's no sort of logic to it because you're in this moment of just complete disarray and terror. And I think Jared Harris plays that really well. Like he doesn't do anything to get out of the way of of the gun. He doesn't do anything to try to like, uh, you know, subdue Valerie in any way. He just kind of cries out to her and begs her, like, "No, Valerie, don't!" and and then just takes these bullets. And um, it's it's really affecting. It's 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 very brutal.
1: Yeah, it's a scary scene. It's really tense. Um, you know, and and again, like the what you you had mentioned earlier where she's going to shoot this other member uh, of the factory that's there. Um, but or she's, you know, she's out of bullets. So but she just keeps clicking away at the gun. It's almost like she's in this trance.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: finally, this character has to tell her like the elevator's here, Valerie, please just go. And then it ends. And that's the whole scene. And it's, it's so um, simple. There's not a lot going on. There's not like a lot of like, you know, huge music cues. There's no like crashing. There's no like lines roaring. It's not like sound effect central. It, it is very, it's, a, a very quiet scene. And I think in that it, it seems all the more brutal.
0: Completely. And yeah, that moment at the end where she, you know, turns to to shoot Mario and, and is out of bullets, like his words uh, just ring in my mind because it is, it, it's such a, a maintenance of kind of decorum and civility in a moment that is horrifying where he just says please go like please just take the elevator and leave the way that you would escort somebody who was being irate out of like a a performance or out of a museum or something it's it's just really uh, I don't know it's 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 sterile and it's all the more unsettling because of how naturalized it all feels within the environment
1: yeah I, I thought that was really really effective I thought that was a really good choice
4: hi hi
3: Gee, everyone's having such a good time. W- would you say something for me?
2: What? Yeah, I'm, you know, I have uh, like an hour's worth on, uh, on tape here, you know. And I was just wondering, maybe you could just do a, you know, like a monologue for me. No, I mean, I, I you know, I can't just monologue like that. I mean, I, I need a stimulating person like yourself, you know, to talk to. You know, I can, you know, I can just do it on my own.
3: <laughs> oh, come on, family
2: say something dirty. That's so easy for you. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about sex. Sex is really nothing, isn't it? I could read you something from my latest masterpiece, Scum Manifesto. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Sex is the refuge of the mindless. Sex is not part of a relationship. On the contrary, it is a solitary experience, non-creative. A gross waste of time. so no, true. Want to more? Yeah. The female can easily, far more easily than she may think, condition away her sex drive. The male.
0: The events leading up to it are also interesting, and you know, I'll say, well, I promise I'll be generous here, but if I have any criticism of the film, I think it's that the film maybe rushes a little bit of. Uh, Valerie's kind of descent into uh, the instability that ultimately leads to her uh, uh, her shooting of Andy Warhol.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I agree hundred percent.
0: And it makes perfect sense, but it, it also comes a, on very quickly and as sort of a cause and effect at the end of the film here, where you know she starts to get increasingly paranoid and and um, conspiratorial, starts to believe that Gerodius and and Andy are conspiring against her to try to keep her from succeeding uh and blames them for a uh you know horrible like dead on arrival television appearance that uh, occurs which as i've read is, is uh real i I could not find any footage of it i assume it's been long Same. buried yeah, or yeah I, I
1: couldn't find it <laughs> um
0: but uh peter friedman the great peter friedman who plays uh frank on succession uh, in a kind of strapped on fake, like big goatee as the, uh, conservative television host, Alan Burke, uh, is in this for a moment where they're filming an interview in front of a live television audience. Uh, Valerie has been given an opportunity to go on TV through one of the kind of factory cohort who was very well-meaning. He mentions that he knows someone in television and could probably help her get on TV, Um, This is all as a result, by the way, of Valerie seeing kind of some some brawl burning radical feminists of the women's liberation movement uh, and becoming very kind of like vindictive and jealous and saying these women got all of their ideas from me. Like, how do I get on TV? How does this happen?
1: Yeah, that was the first kind of glimpse we saw to some sort of um, instability on her part, Mm -hmm. like this kind of like, oh, they got this from me, which is it's just simply not possible. Like three people read Scum Manifesto and one of them was Valerie. So <laughs> right. that, that, you know, that was the first kind of hint. And it, it I agree with you that it seems very rushed. That seemed very oddly paced to me. But that was so this is kind of like the her um downward spiral kind of begins at that moment of seeing this um this protest on TV.
0: Right. And you, you know, begin to kind of understand that some of her ruminations and some of the stuff that she's seeing are obviously things that are sort of just you know nascent philosophies that are kind of breeding as a result of the climate of the time the sort of socio-political textures of everything and uh you know the the kind of twin like women's lib movements and uh the the civil rights movement also you know like queer revolutionaries at this time like becoming more vocal and outspoken it's just a time for this sort of thing um so so she's certainly part of that but there are obviously contemporaries who could also have informed some of what she's seeing on the television, um, and and they all kind of exist in this you know chamber of of sender and receiver, but she gets on TV um, with Alan Burke, and it it seems very clear that she's there kind of as like a show pony for them to just scorn and and deride they want an open and out and kind of vocal unattractive lesbian to come on the program so that they can make fun of her Uh, and it ends violently it ends with her like literally chasing alan burke around the studio trying to assault him
1: yeah that was that was such an interesting scene for so many reasons um one, I think it's because it seems like something that could very well happen today. It seems like, oh, like we have not really progressed too much since uh, cable, you know, TV kind of audiences of yeah. the '60s. Um, I love that he's wearing a really obviously fake beard. I thought that was a great touch and a great character <laughs> uh, choice. Um, and yeah, he he essentially wanted to berate some lesbians, and every other lesbian they invited onto the show was like, mm, "I'm out. That's, this is not happening." except Valerie because she had this uh, message that she wanted to share. Um, I think what's also really smart about this scene is it gives us a chance to see how women were also participating in patriarchal attitudes. Mm -hmm. We get a lot of really close up shots of like older women in the audience, like essentially I think shorthand for, for housewives, right? Who are looking at Valerie like she's like the most disgusting thing they've ever seen. Um, the producer of the, of this show is a woman. So the one that kind of puts um, Valerie right, like in the lion's den is also a woman, which I think was a really interesting choice because it showed um, how much women's liberation was needed and also how uh, women also participate in the patriarchy. I thought that was a really cleverly um, organized scene.
0: Definitely. And you see this throughout the film, you know, that Valerie's feminism is not wholly inclusive. No, um yeah. And, and that's not just with, you know, kind of like a, a more sort of liberal feminine ideology, you know, one of sort of assimilation and, you know, hyper femininity that she finds distasteful and sort of counter to her own aims. Um, but it's also, as you've already mentioned, in some stuff that is very... Essentialist as it pertains to gender. Uh, We've talked about Candy Darling already quite a bit in terms of you know kind of her orbit around the factory and around Valerie, but I I think we should spend uh, a little bit of time just talking about this character and the performance by Stephen Dorff. Yeah, yeah. Candy to me is the
1: question mark kind of over this whole movie because I don't think she played that huge of a role in Valerie's actual life, or like she certainly is not the one who introduced her to Andy. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I do wonder about how close they actually were as friends. Um, but I think the movie tries to use candy kind of strategically to show, um, a version of femininity that was really distasteful to Valerie, because here was someone who was very invested in passing, being perceived as a woman, being as knowledgeable as a woman, um, And being really beautiful and being really palatable and looking great. She wanted to be Kim Novak, you know, and she has this, like beautiful blonde hair. I mean, Candy was gorgeous. You know, we could mm-hmm. see in, in footage um, from that time. And, you know, as a result was really welcomed by this artistic community for being like so lovely and for being so sweet and so like soft spoken and so glamorous. Um, and she put a lot of effort into, into being that way. And for Valerie, I think seeing this effort and seeing that acceptance was probably something that really got to her, I think, and got under her skin. So I think she's probably used as more of like a a juxtaposition to Valerie.
0: Definitely. She's certainly kind of a a foil to Valerie within the film. But I also think, too, that the way that Candy is portrayed in this is strategic on behalf of Mary Heron just as as a, a feminist artist herself. I, I think that it is definitely an opportunity to maybe distance from some of that essentialist rhetoric of a particular mm-hmm. generation of radical feminists, and also to provide sort of a a kind of moral and empathetic backbone to the story through a trans character, somebody who, you know, throughout is a- as lovely as the, the real life figure that. That Dorf is portraying here. Um, the film does sometimes uh, mistreat her, but it's the characters doing so. I think the, I think the film's overall impression and opinion of Candy Darling is one that is uh, genuinely conceived out of love. I think the film does very right by her as a figure. Um, w- we can, you know, uh, talk about you know maybe the 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 90s impulse here or the kind of dated impulse to have a, a a cis male actor portraying a trans character but beyond that i think that she's imbued with a lot of generosity from the filmmakers here and that uh the moments in the film in which valerie misgenders her you know dead names her at a certain point when she she assaults her at the end of this and also the kind of sense of confusion that this culture and that some of these actors have around transness. I I think it's there purposefully to present a a really for the time period in 1996, like a very progressive perspective on trans identity.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, you can't talk about Valerie's story and you can't talk about kind of the factory or or this time period without like presenting certain different ways of being and identities and, and modes of queerness, you know, even on Dean is someone who, you know, is, again was it was almost trying to like feminize this presumably straight male character we have andy who kind of played around with gender a lot and expectations Mm -hmm. um you know we had again candy we see like other um other trans characters um like around them we see other you know uh lesbian characters who are more butch we have her friend stevie you know we Mm -hmm. we see lots of different ways of being and ways of presenting um that's not really overtly commented on, they're just kind of there. And I think that was really a, a really good choice. There was, there was a lot, it was really, as you said, like in this moment of like uh women's liberation and, and there's so much going on just in terms of identity. And especially in that scene, especially in New York, especially in the sixties, like there was just like a lot of people becoming themselves probably openly for the first time.
0: I got, I have to say, I, I think Dorf does a, a really terrific job with the role. Um, Stephen Dorff is, is an actor who I, I kind of always in my mind picture as, as kind of emblematic of a certain type of like, how to put it like early digital MTV era, like late nineties, early aughts, like masculinity. Like I think of like spiky hair and kind of some jagged edges. Um, I, you know, I, I think of like Cecil B. Demented, um, you know, featuring John Waters, uh, filmography, but he has such a, a, a tenderness and a softness here that I've never seen him capable of, especially when he's playing kind of more rough around the edges, more sort of like vehemently masculine roles throughout the rest of his career. Um, and, and like I said, you know, we we can hand ring a little bit about uh, a, a cis actor portraying a trans character. But beyond that, I think that there is... Uh, a, there's a lot special about his performance, and and I, I think that it uh, comes across really well. I, I found myself very endeared to this film's version of Candy.
1: Yeah, I really like that they they let Candy be funny; that she wasn't just eye candy. You know, like mm-hmm. she has really great lines. Um, and, and I think this another scene that's so emblematic of like um, Andy's kind of approach to things, where he asks Candy at a dinner table in front of like lots of people we were, we were discussing how often do you have your period? And her response, <laughs> which I thought was so funny was every day, Andy, I'm such a woman, which is like, she's so funny, you know, like, yeah. like <laughs> th- what, a what an awful question and what a great way of answering it, you know?
0: Yeah. And, you know, just watching some footage of, of the real Candy darling, you are correct. Like she's just so transfixing. She's beautiful. Like she is mesmerizing. Her voice is one thing that is, uh, even more like angelic than like the kind of soft lilt that Dorf does. And um, she, she's just an incredible presence. And I really do like the way the film, as we've already mentioned, kind of juxtaposes her sense of femininity and her sense of identity against Valerie's, um, even in that that scene where Valerie is seeing these, you know, radical feminists burning bras mm-hmm. on the television. Uh, she has kind of a remark where she says all of these revolutionary women come off to me as very hard and i i detest hardness
1: yeah i think candy would have loved the barbie movie <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i i would hope so you know yeah. and and i think that it's you know uh, certainly kind of like a mark of progress that feminism in kind of our modern era has found a way to reinstitute kind of this broad idea of what being a woman is, you know, what womanhood represents and and that it isn't just, you know, something counter to a, a particular kind of like traditional femininity. Um, I, I think Candy represents that. and I think that the movie utilizes her thusly as well.
1: Yeah, I think the fact that Candy was able to to do a lot of what she wanted to do. Obviously, she was never, um, she never became as big of an actress um, as obviously she wanted to be for, for many reasons. One of them being like, she just died tragically quite young um and you know obviously transphobia exists and persists today. but like she, she did she was able i think to offer an example of how softness is a strength and i think that was something that again was very um irksome to valerie because it would not have worked for her i think that valerie was was shut out or perceived that she had been shut out because she was too much whereas candy was so lovely so light so like again so hyper feminine and it worked people liked her people welcomed her into spaces um, mm-hmm. that Valerie wasn't always welcomed into so I think I think it was um you know candy is again to your point there I think to offer a juxtaposition of how there are so many different ways to be a woman and I think it, it's wise of the of the movie to show that
0: absolutely you know there are two kind of Key scenes for me, as they pertain to Valerie and Candy, that we haven't touched on yet. But the first one is is kind of one of the first moments where the film kind of clues us into a little bit of this turfy rhetoric that um, yeah. that Valerie is susceptible to, with her, you know, kind of a, a essentialist ideologies and, and perception of of masculinity and femininity. Femininity, and I think, calls Candy like a sort of like premier victim of patriarchal ideology. Uh, it's, it's kind of, it's pretty hateful. It's, it's pretty mean. Um, you know, it's said sort of just kind of like over the shoulder at candy, like toward her direction, not directly kind of in a conversation with her. Um, but like you said, there's like a softness to her and, uh, a goodness that pervades and persists despite those antagonisms. And I think the ending is really lovely as well. When we see candy as kind of one of the sole arbiters of maybe a a, a sense of forgiveness for uh, Valerie. She's, I think maybe just, she's speaking outwardly. I don't think she's talking directly to Martha Plimpton's character, Stevie, one of uh, Valerie's other friends, but she's maybe reciting a a letter that she would have left or a recording she would have made for her, something like that, where she's mentioning, you know, that Valerie could use a friend right now. And I think it's important for you to write to her and, and to continue connecting with her.
1: Yeah, I think, um, again, I think it, it's part of this idea of things that are often seen as feminine, like love and, and forgiveness and empathy are strengths and they're sometimes harder to come by. And, and I think like that was that was a really good uh, proof of that.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you can also sort of, I think, make the argument that a lot of the impulses that drove Valerie to commit the horrific act that she did are ones that are very human and very shared universally by all of us. Which is, uh, you know, the need for, you know, to put it maybe kind of glibly or, or you know, saccharinely, but like love and you know, recognition, affirmation, things that are like part of the the kind of mechanics and and structures of being a social animal and being a human being um, and her being rid of those things, I think the film says is not necessarily like the key reason why she did what she did, but certainly something that informed and probably uh, allowed that anger to persist in her.
1: Yeah. We never really see Valerie as the object of any sort of love. And, And I think like now that I'm thinking of it, the only glimpse we get into her family life is right at the beginning of the movie. Um, she's shot Andy. It's on TV. It's on like a news. It's playing like it's on the news and it's playing like at a bar. And this waitress is like, is that your daughter? And then mm-hmm. Valerie's father, who we never see or hear from again is like, Oh my God, where's she done now? And he never comes up again, but it's like, it's so interesting now that I think back, like why is that there? What is that? You know, I think part of it is having this like play on TV because like, I think screens, You know, and and visuals are obviously like a like a theme throughout the movie, Um, but how interesting that that's the only glimpse we ever get of her family at all, and it's just like this kind of like ah, there she is, that's Valerie, you know.
0: It's a really interesting scene, and another quick digression here. That actor who uh, plays Valerie's father in that scene is the great character actor Mark Margolis, who people may recognize uh, for his turn on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. who just passed away a couple of weeks ago, very recently, but um, yeah. he he shows up in so many movies as this kind of character, like in one scene as Valerie's father, or you know, like homeless man on bus, or you know, uh, bar patron, or you know, Christmas party attendee, those kinds of of roles. But he always makes an impression, and he's such a distinct face. Um, yeah, great. He, face. He's, he's very missed. So I want to talk a little bit, I guess, maybe about like the postscript of the film as well, which ends all of this, you know, which is very tragic on on kind of even a few more notes of tragedy that feel, I don't know, just very, very kind of urgently sad. Um, we, we learn, of course, as you already mentioned, that Candy Darling dies uh, at the age of 29, well before her time, uh, as a result of her desire to uh, really uh, try to like... Make her transition permanent and, and sound, and um, takes a lot of illegal hormones and a lot of things that are off-market drugs um, that ultimately end her life. Uh, Andy Warhol, you know, after this, he he very nearly died as a result of the actions that we see in this film. He has to wear a surgical girdle for the rest of his life. Um, you've probably listeners seen some of the photographs that were taken after the fact, turning you know, this very tragic and ugly incident into art itself and his body into art, seeing his scars and seeing the way that he had to live. Um, but he ultimately died, too, in the hospital, um, sort of as a result of his declining health uh, as a result of this attack. Uh, and then, as you've already mentioned, Valerie, too, is, is someone who died uh, in a state of precarity, impoverished, homeless, uh, sick on the streets of San Francisco. Um, there's not a, a lot of happy endings in this film.
1: No. Yeah. And I, I think it, it is, it's such a sad situation and it is such a a state of people having used each other and not, as you said before, like not really have shown each other a lot of love or compassion until it was far too late.
0: Yeah. It's also, I you know, kind of it, it expresses to me in a certain way, just how quickly this era kind of came and went that this sort of like radicalism of this moment was really kind of flash in the pan sort of stuff. Um, and that, you know, before the, the century was out, like all of these people were gone and that, you know, their memory remains and, and, you know, people like Mary Heron trying to do their stories justice remain, um, and they remain influential in the art spaces, but there aren't many kind of banner waivers for, for this sort of very transgressive kind of attitude in the modern era.
1: Yeah, it, it seems almost that what persists the most are kind of the things that were the most palatable, right? Like, you know, the the Marilyn Monroe screen prints and, mm-hmm. you know, oh, Andy had, like, this fabulous, like, you know, blonde wig that's so, you know, uh, iconic at this point. And, oh, you know, we see we see Valerie and she's, like, so gruff. And we kind of see, like, the outlines of all these figures. But, like, I, I think the the things that filled them in have been lost definitely over time.
0: Yeah. And this the film certainly has kind of an elegiac quality to it. You know, Mary Heron, sort of as a as this outsider artist, as this, you know, up-and-coming uh feminist filmmaker, certainly kind of mourning the loss of some of this, of of this kind of era in which you know, this kind of art and, and sort of transgressive quality and and edge to everything had subsided, you know, and, and like we've already mentioned, her kind of experience in in the punk spaces and and seeing the kind of degradation of an artistic culture that's uh more and more forbidding to these kinds of people, um, certainly I think influences a lot of how and why the film is made.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, just looking at you know the '70s and the '80s and what what came after this, and just how there is such a spiral into like you know into sickness, into capitalism. You know, like mm-hmm. the the things that made it so that someone like Valerie could not be an artist only became more right. That only more blockers were put up. Um, we would see, you know, we don't see people like Andy anymore unless they are part of a brand you know, unless they are monetizable, these things are are only, I think I've only gotten worse in a lot of ways since, since this time.
0: There's also to me, I think, and this is going to sound odd maybe, but there's almost like kind of a reckoning with a, a certain level of complicity on behalf of Heron, like as a filmmaker in a sort of meta way. You mentioned already that there's sort of this kind of dismissal of Valerie by Andy when he mentions how well everything is typed, you know, that that she does a really good job as a, a typist, even if the, the words on the page are meaningless to him. Uh, and in the film, there are a couple of moments like a lot of hay is made throughout the film about the fact that Andy only works in these sort of new modes of expression, whether that's you know, this kind of silk screening stuff that he's revolutionizing, whether it's filmmaking. Um, and of course, we are watching a film. It, you almost kind of get the sense that Heron is sort of dabbling into this idea that, you know, the the, the generation of artists that she's a part of are informed more by the Warhols of the world and have almost kind of betrayed or abandoned a more kind of classically formal version of art like theater and like literature the way that uh, that Valerie sort of represents in the film
1: yeah yeah we were you know Valerie's told um I think by Edie Sedgwick like Andy doesn't make plays anymore he's
0: mm-hmm. we're
1: on to film like keep up you know um <laughs> and, and it is I think that's true that that there is a lack of not even so much a lack of respect for um older forms of, of art making and, and craft but just like this fascination and lack of attention I think it's like the new flashy thing and this is what's going to make money it's like you know I wonder what would Andy Warhol have thought of NFTs and what if he had jumped on them like right away, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 you know, and it's, and it's interesting because I do wonder um, how much of that was him trying to sort of poke fun at these things and kind of like reveal the emptiness and the hollowness beneath them or how much it was just like, you know, I need to monetize this or how much was like, this is fascinating to me. This is like genuinely interesting. I think, He's someone that has kept people at a distance, I think, you know, on purpose. So there is always that question of like, what what is the the reasoning behind this? Like, why are we why are we moving on to the next thing so quickly?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, you know, like as a result of the the actions that Valerie takes in the film, uh, the Scum Manifesto does find a little bit more purchase than it otherwise would have. So there is you know this interesting relationship with uh, these kind of moments of of horror and tragedy in the real world that give way to something that does essentially kind of eternalize people and their works and and their ideologies. I I think of a lot of the ways that the left sort of co-ops, you know, kind of Famous, I'll just call them terrorist killers, things like that. I, I think of like, you know, the, the faction on on Twitter who are like big Christopher Dorner fans because you know he ultimately decided that the LAPD was corrupt and went on a killing rampage. Um, I, I'm not going to say you know that there are you know like big uh, like Valerie Solanas heads out there who do it to be edgy or anything, but I, I think that you know we have reached a stage where I, I'm reading some things you know in, in preparation for this where people are. Uh, kind of codifying the shooting of Andy Warhol as almost a performance piece, as Mm -hmm. uh, sort of an expression that was necessary in order to uh, make the scum manifesto as pervasive as it was. And and I don't think that that was the intent on Valerie's part. I think she certainly was someone who was probably just, you know, very uh, troubled and and very sick. But I, I do find the conversation around it compelling that, that we've since tried to kind of rehabilitate it into this idea that has a cause and effect relationship to the popularity of her work.
1: Sure. Yeah. I I think it's so tempting to fit things into, into a narrative that makes sense to us. Right. Or that like furthers our own personal agendas or belief systems. And, um, the idea that it's like, you know, how perfect would it be that this woman would topple, you know, this kind of patriarchal figure in the art world and who said he was subversive. That was he really subversive or Subversive? that she was the true radical, you know, and I just, mm-hmm. I don't think that's what it was, um, but it makes for a good story. And I think it's, it's like, you know, a, a bedtime story. People tell themselves to feel good, <laughs> but I don't think that was the reality of the situation. And you know, it, it really is not like Scum Manifesto is like a big uh, bestselling, you know, work and never has been really you you really rarely ever hear people bring her up at all even in relation to andy
0: mm-hmm. yeah and i mean it seems like even a sort of kind of modern movement of feminist theory and thought um, a, a lot of people do tend to i, I think express that it's maybe fascinating as a, an artifact but that maybe solanus is is a character and a figure within the movement that's best sort of kind of forgotten a little bit and and maybe Mm. have her work, uh, be read the way that a lot of people do read it, which is as sort of a, a satirical, uh, kind of totem of a lot of the expressions of anger that were very pervasive at the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I I think people really need to, um, think about avoiding the, the girl bossification of Valerie (laughs) Solanas. Um, but I think it's worth noting, like i cannot afford to own anything Andy Warhol ever made, and I do have a copy of Scum Manifesto through theft. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <laughs> it tells you something.
0: Yes, absolutely it does. Uh, the last thing as we're wrapping up here AA to talk about, I think, is maybe just uh, the filmmaker Mary Heron herself and kind of her legacy. Uh, this is obviously the the first of her works, her debut feature. Um, it, it did play at Sundance. It won a jury award for Lily Taylor's uh, performance in the film. And be that as it may, uh, it is a film that is nigh impossible to find. There are, are not uh, many DVD copies that you can find of it. There is no you know, regularly printed home video release. It is not available to stream. Um, I am someone who uh, absolutely had to come through it by Semi legal means, you know, it fell off the back of a virtual truck. <laughs> um, this particular era of independent film, I think, is uh, so rife with sort of these these studios and and these production companies that sprung up to make a film or two and then collapsed or went bankrupt. Uh, that that it, I mean, it really is kind of a shame how hard it is to get your hands on something like this, especially from someone who's so noteworthy and who who gained so much popularity with her sophomore feature.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's baffling to me that no, um, you know, no streaming service or, you know, whatever has decided, like, let's make a, like a whole collection of like debut films. Like I think people would be so interested in seeing where people started out. And and also just the fact that this was her first film, she's so confident throughout, like it, yeah. it really, and I think that's a lot of it is because she had been writing for so long. This really does feel like a movie made by a writer just because it is so rhythmic, and as visually lovely as it is, and really a lot of it, it has such a wonderful. Like she has such a great ear for dialogue, um, especially Valerie's voice, Andy's voice. They're so precise and um, just like a, a like a fabulous cadence throughout. That I think, you know, it, it's so such an accomplishment. I think to to get that in your first film.
0: I completely agree. Um, And and she's got an incredible group of collaborators, too. You know, great performers. We already mentioned John Cale, Um, the cinematographer on this, too. We haven't mentioned yet, but a a woman cinematographer named Ellen Kuras, who has a a very storied career. She's worked with Spike Lee, Jim Jarmusch, Michelle Gondry. Um, She's the the person who actually was behind the camera for uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So uh, an incredible talent in her own right as well. Uh, I guess with Heron, you know, like we see her shortly hereafter at the beginning of the 21st century, get the most acclaim she's ever going to receive for American Psycho, um, which is her adaptation of a Brett Easton Ellis uh, novel. It is uh, wildly divergent from that book, as far as I understand, um, but a terrific movie. It's certainly the first one of, of her works that I came to um, as a budding cinephile. And she hasn't really... Uh, ever kind of achieved that level of acclaim again?
1: No, yeah. And I think so much of American psycho's um, kind of reemergence, I think, into popular culture, like the memification kind of a Patrick Bateman, mm-hmm. is really interesting to me because a lot of it um, I think speaks to how nuanced and complicated and smart Mary Heron is about feminism and about masculinity and femininity and patriarchy. Um, And I think a lot of people um, like the girl boss, Patrick Bateman uh, memes. I think, (laughs) uh, you know, it's people kind of getting a sense of that without like kind of going fully, let's analyze it. You know, I I think it's a testament to how complicated her movies are that, that this kind of persists in the way it has now in these like memes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'd be remiss to not maybe point out the irony that her most successful work to date is uh, one of the few that is interrogating patriarchy from the perspective of, uh, you know, toxic masculinity, as opposed to ones in which she is, uh, you know, really kind of pedestalizing, compelling female characters. You know, she she after this did The Notorious Betty Page with Gretchen Moll. Um She has a, a film from 2011 that's like a what feels like a kind of like YA franchise starter called *The Moth Diaries*? That's like a vampire movie um, that came out during like a whole slew of those sorts of things. Though, uh, despite its very negative critical reception, front of the show Scout Tafoya has an awesome uh, Roger Ebert like video essay for *The Unloved* on it. Interested to, to see, see it. I have not seen it, um, but. She hasn't really shifted away from this kind of biopic mode in a minute. She has a, a movie from 2018 called Charlie Says that is about uh, the the women that were in the orbit of uh, of uh, Charles Manson during the Spawn Ranch era. And then a 2022 film called Dolly Land in which uh, Sir Ben Kingsley plays Salvador Dali. Uh, so I haven't seen them. I, I haven't had much interest in pursuing them, but I, I am curious to see the how her fixations and how kind of her her themes that she's exploring here early in her career may have carried over into those works.
1: Yeah, I think um I mean the, again I haven't seen her more recent stuff, um, but just from the descriptions you've shared, it seems like she's still really interested in uh charisma as as kind of like this this uh force on its own and how that manifests in, in men and women and um was it, I don't want to get this wrong. I don't, I, I think this is a Camille Paglia quote. So like context, <laughs> but sure. um, defined someone defined charisma as like a meeting of like masculine and feminine like that. And that's when, where the two meet charisma is formed. Um, and I don't know if that's true, but it is something that seems to be like threaded through a lot of uh, Heron's work.
0: mhm Yeah, I I am looking forward, I think, to maybe doing a a deeper dive on her work now that I've come to. uh, I shot Andy Warhol. And I I have to thank you for bringing the film because I I would not have found, I think, cause to watch it uh, as soon as I did, had you not mentioned it to me.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I I really hope you enjoyed it. I find it to be a really um, a very funny and very engaging movie.
0: Yeah, I think it's fantastic. shocking. Shocking, funny moving, uh, a, a whole slew of great performances in it. Seek it out. Um, I, I have said this on, on many shows recently, I feel like, but again, this is a movie that, uh, is fairly difficult to get your hands on. Um, as always, if you reach out to me at hitfactorypod at gmail.com, send me an email or you, if you're a mutual and, uh, or, and, or ugh, subscriber to Twitter blue and can DM me online. Um, Feel free to reach out there as well. I am happy to point you in the direction of a way to view this film um, because I think the more people that can see it, the better. I hope that um, Mary Heron, the filmmaker, would also endorse us perhaps sharing the good word and allowing people to, to see her work as well.
1: Steal um, the DVD from an artist roommate. <laughs>
0: That's right. Steal the DVD uh, from a roommate. I don't know. Check your local library. If it's at your, ch- maybe it's there. Maybe you know they're they're the last bastion of like you know the keepers of the sacred texts like this. Um, I always find fun out of print DVDs at uh, the local SFPL branch. So um, any way that you can find it, please do. Highly encourage it. Um, AA Delavine. Thank you again so very much for joining me today uh, as my guest.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me.
0: You've been a delight. Uh, where can people find you and your work around the Internet?
1: Well, I think um, I don't know what we're calling this day these days, but Twitter or X. Um, I'm still there until whatever it implodes. Uh, right. I recently <laughs> joined Blue Sky. Uh, they're both under uh, at A.A. Delavine, So easy to find
0: from our end of things. Uh, you can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod. We also have a Patreon. Or you can follow along with us, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod for bi-weekly bonus content and episodes for just $5 a month. I will give a shout out to our overlords. Their names are Linda, Jesse K., Jared Murray. Thank you so much for your continued support. And we will catch you all the next time. See ya.
4: Valerie Solanas took the elevator, got off at the fourth floor. Valerie Solanas took the elevator, got off at the fourth floor. She pointed the gun at Andy, saying, you cannot control me anymore. I believe there's got to be some retribution. I believe an eye for an eye is elemental. I believe there's something wrong if she's alive right now. Solanus took three steps pointing at the floor Valerie Solanas waved a gun pointing at the floor From inside her idiot madness spoke and bang Andy fell onto the floor I believe Life's serious enough for retribution I believe Being sick is no excuse And I believe I would have pulled the switch on her myself When they got him to the hospital, his pulse was gone They thought that he was dead His guts were pouring from his wounds onto the floor They thought that he was dead Not until years later would the hospital do to him what she could not, what she could not. Where were you? You didn't come to see me, Andy said. I think I died. Why didn't you come to see me, Andy said. It hurt so much they took blood from my hand.